not then wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can we be You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I hate to begin a sermon with a disagreement with my esteemed colleague, but uh, he did say that we're all excited to hear from me over the next three weeks on the topic of money, and I just know that's a downright lie. And... Um, we're in this weird situation where, if we're honest, um, I don't want to preach about money and you don't want to hear about money. And so we've got this weird thing happening where probably we could all just shake hands and go home early, um, which is a possibility, except that what I know about you, if you come to this church, if this is your, the church you call home, I know that one of your core desires is that you want to be made more and more like Jesus. That's why you keep coming here. You want to be made more like Jesus um, as you walk in his ways and as you sit under the authority of his word. And so with that kind of core assumption in mind, we need to recognize that the Bible just has a lot to say about money. And... uh, Apparently, the, the, uh, the mathematicians have worked out that Jesus, of what Jesus taught, I think about 25% was about money. And so the fact that I haven't done any teaching on money for three years is an indictment on me. If I want to be more like Jesus, if I want to be a, a rabbi like Jesus, a teacher like him, then I should have been talking more about money than I have been. And so this is a good opportunity for us just to come back and say once again, yes, Lord, in spite of our natural tendency to, to, to want to push this whole thing about money away, in spite of my natural tendency not to be the preacher who stands up and talk, you know, yells about money, um, in spite of all of that, actually our core desire, really at the heart of our being, we want to be more like Jesus and we understand that he changes us as we walk in his ways and, and submit ourselves to his word. And so... That's great. It's quite easy to say that we want to be more like Jesus. It's quite easy for us week after week to talk about our mission as a church, to make all of life all about Jesus, that that actually extends to every part of us, including our wallets. It's quite easy to say that. It feels right because it is right, but then we have to come to terms with what Jesus actually thinks about what he actually says about money and possessions. So here's, here's a couple of things that Jesus says about money and possessions. In Luke 12, it'll come up on the screen in just a sec. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then in Mark 10, he says this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Then again in Luke 12, he says, Watch out. Be on your guard, Red Door Church. Be on your guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. 
Now, that's, that's an interesting one because we could read that and most of us would say, yeah, that's right. Okay? Like, that's right. Life is about more than the stuff that we own, the money that we make, the house that we live in. Theoretically, we sign up to that pretty easily and then we find ourselves all through life accumulating and accumulating and accumulating and spending most of our time earning money so that we can accumulate possessions. So what we believe and espouse theoretically doesn't actually match up with what we practice in literally in the day-to-day stuff of life. So all I'm saying is we're on this collision course. Whenever we come to talk about money, we're on a collision course with Jesus about what he says and the way that he lived. And I just want us to be aware of that before we jump in to the shark tank, all right? We just need to be aware that's what we're doing. Now, if you hear those things that Jesus says, representative of his kind of ethic when it comes to money and possessions, if you hear that and you still want to make all of life all about him, you still want to follow him, not just within his words, but in his ways, if you still want in, then the question is, now that I've recognised that my way of thinking about money and possessions and my way of, of dealing with money and possessions is so different to that of Jesus, if that's true, then how, how do I go about the process of changing to be more like him and less like me? That's the question, right? That's the question every, every Christian asks every day of their lives. Given that there is an evident chasm between who Jesus is and what he's like and who I am and what I'm like, and given that I want to be more like him, then how do I bridge the chasm? How, how on earth? Am I going to change? Now, here's, here's my kind of working theory. Oh, it's not mine. This is as old as the hills, all right? But here's, here's the idea. In order for us to change, and in our case, in order for us to be made more like Jesus, we need to attend to three areas of our being. And I'm, I'm calling these the, the head, the heart, and the hands. And this is what we're going to address over the next three weeks. We're going to divide these talks up into talks that focus on, today, the head, then the heart next week, followed by the hands. And we should have a little slide there that explains the course forward. So today we're going to talk about our way of seeing the world. When it comes to money and possessions, you could apply this to any area of life. We're going to be looking at money specifically What is our way of seeing the world and how is that out of sync with the way that God sees the world and the way that he's revealed the world to us in his word? Next week, we're going to get to the heart of things. And this is what Jesus majors on every time he talks about money. He wants to talk about our heart. So next week, we're going to talk about what are our values? What are our priorities? How might they need to change if we're actually, in fact, going to grow in Christ-likeness? And then the third week... Our hands, our actions, our practices, our habits when it comes to money, possessions, material goods. All right, is that clear? It's a path forward. So beginning today with our head, with the way that we see the world. Here's here's where I'm coming from in terms of wanting God to change 
our mindset. Wanting God to change our perspective. Here's what we need to understand right from the top. Go to the next slide. Thanks, Aiden. When it comes to head change, all right? When it comes to changing our perspective, the way that we see the world, you might say our worldview. When it comes to changing our perspective on money and possessions, the way we see the world will be determined by our mindset. And so what I'm going to try and argue this morning is that we need to move from our default mindset, which is a scarcity mindset, to the biblical mindset, which is an abundance mindset. Now, this is specifically referencing our view of who God is and his provision to us. So we're thinking about, is God a good provider? Does he provide for all of our needs? And our answer to that question will be based on whether we view the world through a scarcity lens. God is not a good provider. He hasn't He hasn't given me all that I need. Uh, I need to grab and I need to uh, hoard and I need to uh, build bigger barns in order to fill and just take care of myself. I need to get mine. That's, I'm going to argue, our default scarcity mindset. And what God wants to do is move us by the power of his spirit to have the biblical abundance mindset where God is good He is good Father who provides for all of our needs. So let's talk about the biblical perspective. This is the one we want to attain. This is the one that we want God to kind of imbue in us so that this is our natural way of seeing the world. This is the abundance mindset that's set out from the very first page of the Scriptures. All right. So if you go to Genesis chapter 1, what do you find in Genesis 1? What does it tell us? It's the story of creation, right. It's where we begin when we talk about the whole plot line of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It begins with creation, and it begins with some objective truths. These are facts that exist in the universe, irrespective of how you feel and what you believe. And it's an established fact from the first page of Scripture that God is a good provider. In fact, he is the one who provides everything that exists. Out of nothing, he creates everything. So the Bible paints the picture of God being like a generous host who lays out a table that is creation and fills it with everything that is needed. Everything needed for abundant life is laid out on the table from the first page of Scripture. God is a good host. He's a host who provides in abundance. So if you just read Genesis 1, 29 to 31, it says, God said, look, I have, what's the word there? Given. Everything in Genesis 1 and 2 is about giving and all of it is coming in one direction, from God to creation. He gives and gives and gives and gives. I have given you, he says to man and woman, every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed, this will be food for you. He goes on. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. 
God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. I wonder if you've ever been the host for a dinner party at your house and before everyone comes in and destroys everything, you just look at what you've got laid out for everyone and you say to yourself, everything is very good. If you can say that, it means that you're a good host. You've provided abundantly. And so it is of God in the first chapter of the Bible. He is a host who provides abundantly and everything is very, very good. Specifically, talking about Adam and Eve, about our first parents, male and female, in chapter 2 of Genesis, it goes on and it's more and more he gave and gave and gave. And in this case, he brings a gift to the man. So check out Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. So he brings her this gift. Like a, like a father of the bride walking down the aisle, he presents Eve to the man. And the man said, he's, he's so overcome, even as a man, he comes up with poetic language to describe what he sees in front of him. This, this, this naked woman given as a gift to him. He says, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one should be called woman, for she was taken from man. He receives, again, another gift from a host who provides abundantly for his creation. All right, so this is the mindset that is established on the first pages of Scripture, and it's the mindset that Scripture has of God, the perspective of God that Scripture has from beginning to end. God is a host who provides abundantly. So you just pick any page of scripture at random and you're probably going to find God represented in this way. It's going to show you a picture of a God who is abundant in his provision. Let me just pick out a few, few passages for us. So Psalm 84, 11 is what it says. He sa it says, of God, the psalmist says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield, right? That's provision. The Lord God grants favour and honour, provision. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. He is not a God who withholds. He is a God who pours forth provision. James chapter 1 and verse 17. You know this one? Every good and perfect gift. So think to yourself, is this good? Is this thing I've got good? Well, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Again, poetic language to describe just how good God is. Coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Maybe you've had fathers who one birthday comes around, they feel really generous, they give you a pony. The next one comes around, you get a, I don't know, a lump of coal. No, that's what Santa does, all right? He, this, is a good, this is a good illustration, all right? Santa... Naughty or nice, that's going to determine whether you get the pony or the coal. God the Father, he doesn't change like Santa. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He is good from beginning to end. And his goodness is objective goodness. That is, his love is unconditional love. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down 
from the Father of lights. I love that. I love the way that Paul talks about the talks to the non-Christians. He's talking to Greeks. He's talking to pagans in Acts 14. And this is how he describes God's relationship, not just to people that love him, but his relationship to all people. He says, people, why are you doing these things? Why are you, why are you, why are you bowing down to bits of wood? Why are you worshipping idols? Why are you doing these things? We are people also just like you, and we are proclaiming good news to you. What's the good news? The good news is that you should turn away from these worthless things. Turn away from material things. Turn away from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. He goes back to Genesis 1 like we just did. He's a God of provision. He made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Next verse, verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, but he did not leave himself without a witness since, what is he like? He did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. That's what God is like, Paul says. And he says it to the people who don't even know him. He says it to the people who are bowing down to false idols. He says, look, God, just by his nature, is good. He's provider. He fills your bellies. He fills you with joy. That's who he is. That's what he's like. And then finally, just, just to convince you, this is the biblical perspective on God's provision. You got Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus says, Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, fathers, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, 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 Give good things to those who ask him. All right, so you got the picture? As far as the Bible's concerned, this is how God is to be viewed. The reality of who God is and what he's like is that he is a good host who lays a full table of provision, not even just for the people who love him, but for all people. That's the kind of God he is. Now, the reason that our perspective is so different to that. The reason that we have not an abundance mindset, but a scarcity mindset, a grabby mindset, a hoarding mindset, an anxious mindset, right? The reason that we have that mindset, that perspective, goes all the way back to the fall. So we saw Genesis 1 and 2, provision. Then you get to 3 and everything changes, all right? At the fall, in Genesis 3, these, this man and this woman who are enjoying the abundance of God's provision, which is very good, are suddenly confronted with a lie. You know it, right? It's the lie of the serpent. It's the first great deception and at the root of that deception, everyone just look at me for a moment because I'm losing you, right? At the root of that deception, core, essential to that deception is this idea. God is not good. 
God is withholding something from you. Right? That's at the core of it. Up until now, Adam and Eve, you have lived in God's abundance, believing him to be an an abundant provider. But consider this. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's not good and maybe he's holding something back from you. Hmm? And so that's what... That, that's the first insidious thorn in the flesh that works itself all the way in and leads to Eve and Adam doubting God's goodness and taking something for themselves. If you read Genesis 1 to 3, you'll notice it's all God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave, right? And the people receive and receive and receive. And then Genesis 3, what happens? Eve takes. So you go from being a, a, a community of creation receiving God's goodness to suddenly deciding we need to take for ourselves. And from that point on, our mindset is fractured. It's broken, stained. And we go from what we were created to be, creatures receiving from God with an abundance mindset, to fallen, broken individuals looking to grab and to take and to get what's mine. Because suddenly we don't know whether God is good and suddenly we have an assumption deep within that maybe he's holding something back from us. That moment when the world broke, when the symphony of creation was it made that noise sometimes here on, I don't know, cartoons. It's like, it's, it's the record going, right? That happened. And since then, the symphony has been out of sync. There's no rhythm. The rhythm that God intended has been broken up. And all of a sudden, our mindset has changed. All of a sudden, we have to deal with deep dissatisfaction. Right? That's something I can say over you without knowing a single thing about you. I can say all of the people in um, Canada today are dissatisfied. I can say all of the people in Tasmania today are dissatisfied. I can say it about the whole universe. That's why the Stones did so well with that song, right? Because everyone goes, yeah, I get that. I can't be satisfied. We, we saw this when we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes about 100 years ago, right? Just day after day after day, we saw this king, Solomon, who has everything at his fingertips, say, I just, I'm just not satisfied. Was it one of the Rockefellers? One of those multi-trillionaires who was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, a little bit more. Yeah, that's some truth. Ever since this point, we have to deal with this deep dissatisfaction. We have to deal with this inherent selfishness. Like, I don't have to try to be selfish, you know? Working the other way, I need to do some real work. But to be selfish, I mean, I just sit back and that happens to me. That's my default. War. What is war? As someone who is deeply interested in military history, I can tell you at the heart of war is the heart of this sin in Genesis 3. It's a taking, right? It's this drive to take. I I want what you have. I want it. 
That's at the heart of every war that's ever happened. You got something that I want, damn it, and I will take it by force. This is not something that just exists on the military and national scale. This is happening in every household in our community. Hey, listen, if, if you're sitting there and you're like, oh, this guy's yelling a lot, but I'm not convinced by what he's saying. Just, if you've got kids, you know this is true. You know that your kid was born with this heart. All right? You did not give birth to a precious little innocent angel who has progressively been corrupted by the world. No, it, that kid came out wanting stuff that he didn't have. My kids the other day, right? Here's an illustration. My kids the other day, who I love deeply, all right? And God bless them because they get made fun of all the time up here, but he, they'll be okay, all right? So here's, they're, they're sitting in an ocean of Lego. You guys got this ocean of Lego at your place? Just, it's just, it seems to multiply somehow. There's some kind of... Anyway, this, what happens? Judah, you remember this? Judah takes something that India has painstakingly put together and dissembles it because he's a boy and this is what boys do. We break things down and then build things up again, right? So he's just doing what comes naturally and this is my point. He takes it apart and puts something back together and then in a sea of Lego, they go to war. The thing that he has taken is replicated 2,000 times in the pile around them and yet that is the one that I wanted. That was... Mine. One of the first things your kid ever says with confidence and conviction is, that is mine. So, right, so this, this is the point. This, and we may, it's easy to make fun of kids. Just turn the mirror on yourself. This is you. This is the guy who gets the, the promotion at work, and that was my promotion, all right? So by nature, we've moved dramatically from what we're created to have, an abundance mindset, and now by nature and really by choice, we have a scarcity mindset. I need to get mine. I need to hoard what I can. I heard the other day that the, since, the nine, since 1950, the average house has doubled in size and the average family has halved in size. Right? That's a scarcity mindset at work. I need to get mine. I need to accumulate what I can. I need to pile it up and up and up because I can't trust that God will provide for me. I need to do it for myself. Now, in response to the fall, God, who has liberally provided all things that we need and warned his creation against turning to other means of provision, taking rather than receiving, he sees them choose to scarcity over provision and in response to their sin he what keeps on giving what's he doing you know one of the first things he does with adam and eve yes he judges them but he also provides clothes for them he doesn't say hey i made you naked and it was good and so you've made this choice my boy this morning, I gave him some chewing gum. He ended up taking it out, colouring it in with texture, and then getting it all over his fingers. Then, after I, I, I disciplined him for that, he asked for more chewing gum. I said, no, you're not going to learn. You're not going to learn. If I just keep giving you gum, you're not going to... God's not a good father. He is prodigal. 
in his provision. Again, that's not to say there aren't consequences for the actions of Adam and Eve. There are earth-shattering consequences. He does discipline them. He is a good father. But he also provides, he takes skins of animals and provides, by way of a kind of a proto-sacrifice, provides clothing for them. And then with Israel, right, he takes this people to be his own. He says, I'm going to bless the nation through you. I'm going to bless you abundantly. I'm going to be, you know, the God provision that the Bible says I am. I'm going to do that for you. And then you're going to bless people, all the people of the nations around you. And I'm going to provide a land for you. You know what kind of land it is? A desert. It's got nothing in it. No, no, actually, it's not a desert. It's a land flowing, flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to provide this land of abundance for you and, and, and you're going to be the recipients of my provision. You're going to have a mindset of, an, of abundance as you enjoy that provision and then you're going to tell the nations around you and, and one of the things that's going to get them to sit up and notice is, is just how much you would enjoy and give thanks for and uh, are content with my provision. And how does that turn out? Like from the first page, they're grumbling. They're grumbling. We wish we were slaves. And that just carries on through the history of Israel. Ugh. And yet God keeps giving and giving and giving. And then ultimately and definitively, he gives how? By giving himself. The greatest provision he could ever make. He gives himself. Jesus, the Son of God, is born into the world as a gift. For God so loved the world that he... Yeah. I like how our translation puts it, God loved the world in this way. So you think, how does God love us? He loved in, in this way, that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Another way of saying it is abundant life. So he is the abundant provider of everything we need, not just now, but forever. God. Maybe we should have an abundance mindset. Maybe we've got good reason to have the mindset, the very mindset that we were created to have. Now, what I love about Jesus, and this is where we're going to focus in on the next two weeks, Jesus is the walking, talking embodiment of the abundance mindset. No one's ever lived it like he did. The walking, talking, teaching embodiment and example of the abundant, abundance mindset. So if you're looking at these two options and you're thinking, Oh, yeah, this way that I've always lived with scarcity mindset kind of sucks. Actually, it drives me to despair and deep anxiety. Maybe an abundance mindset would be a better way to go. Turns out, actually, that's the way I was created to live. If, if all of that's happening in your head right now, please, God, then the next step is to examine the man who lived it perfectly. Jesus is the walking, talking, teaching, embodiment of the abundance mindset. So we're going to look at what motivated him, 
and how we lived in the next couple of weeks just to see how we might follow his example, how we might walk in his ways. Now, let me just give you a little taste of that and then we'll, we'll leave the rest for next week. Here's a taste. If you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6. If you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, you will see that Jesus takes our default mindset. He takes our scarcity mindset and he flips it on its head. Read what he says about money and it's upside down. He says things like this, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 33. Just see if this is at all challenging. He says, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. Stop there. (laughs) These aren't suggestions. These are instructions for all of his apprentices. All right? Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Here's a good question. Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about your clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You have little faith. So again, don't worry. Don't worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you, will be provided for you. Isn't that just a crazy paragraph? It's so upside down. Our mindset is get, 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 get. And then you won't have to worry. Jesus says, don't worry to begin with, and God will provide. So adopting Jesus' abundance mindset, adopting his mindset, seeing the world the way that he sees it, walking in his ways according to his words, is the way that you are created to live every moment. And if you do live that way, I believe God will imbue you, he will saturate you with, he he will equip you with at at least two virtues that will help you overcome the curse 
of the scarcity mindset. Remember, it's a curse from Satan. So overcoming that curse will happen as we follow in Jesus' words and his ways and attendant to that new way of seeing the world, there will be at least two virtues that come along with it that will change your life and help overcome the curse. Right? These are the last two things I'm going to tell you about and it moves us into next week. First of all, you're going to notice that all of a sudden you're much more prone to thanksgiving. You're much more given to thanksgiving. It kind of just comes out of you. You don't have to make sure you're at church so you get your one little hour of thanksgiving each week. Actually, your kind of way of breathing is a way of giving thanks. You move through each day with thanksgiving in a way that you wouldn't have if you held on to that scarcity mindset. And that's obvious, right? Why would you give thanks if constantly in the forefront of your mind is, I don't, have a th- I don't have what I need, I don't have what I need, I don't have what I need. What are you giving thanks for? Nothing. But if God is a good and generous host who has laid out everything you need, then of course you're going to give thanks in all circumstances. I love how Paul says at 1 Thessalonians, right? Write this down. Get it tattooed somewhere if you need to. 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Some of us spend all of our time, again, worrying about what God's will is for us. He just told you, give thanks in everything. How am I going to do that when I'm just constantly consumed by the stuff that I don't have? Yeah, it's not going to happen. But if everything I have is a gift from God and he is providing everything I need, then yeah, I can do that. I can give thanks in everything, for everything, in all circumstances. Now, I mean, you can read 100,000 self-improvement books, not written by Christians, that just affirm what Christians have always believed. If you turn your mind towards thanksgiving, you will be a happier, healthier person. That's just a fact. Christians have always known that. We haven't always practiced it. One other thing, thanksgiving and It's twin contentment. Have you ever met a content person? They're so rare. They're like unicorns. It's quite a thing to get to know a content person. They've got this weird, unhurried way about them. They've got this foreign, de-stressed persona. They kind of smile more than your average person. They tend to give thanks in all circumstances. The abundance mindset gives birth to both thanksgiving and contentment. And the best verse on contentment is one of the most, I don't want to say misquoted, but if you go, if you, if you, if you've ever heard someone quote Philippians 4.13, which is, as you know, off by heart, but we'll put it on the screen anyway. It's, the, it's where Paul says, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. You might have got a coffee cup with that on it. And you think, yep, I can do Monday because, you know. And, pe- and people have used that verse to motivate them to do great things. I don't climb Mount Everest or, you know, you can see your man up the back there with it tattooed on his arm, right? So, th- and that's great. All of that is true. Like every good endeavor is empowered by God. 
So there's a general application. But what's, what's Paul specifically talking about? Do you know the context of the verse? Let me read you verse 11 to 13. You guys are getting itchy. I'm done after this. All right, here's what he says. He's talking to the Philippians about God providing for his needs. He's talking about an abundance mindset. He says, I don't say this to you out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself in. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret, the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, verse 13 the next verse, I am able. I'm able. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm able to be content. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about contentment. And the reason he wants you to know that his contentment is fueled by God himself is because he knows how hard it is to be content. That if he just said to you, be content, your response would be, I don't know how. That's really hard. In fact, it's probably beyond my means. And so he wants you to know, it's all right. God is the one who is going to enable you to be content. And that is where I'm going to leave us moving to next week. Because above everything else, as we talk about how to align ourselves, head, heart and hands, with the way of Jesus when it comes to money and possessions, what you need to know is all of this change is empowered by and affected by God himself. That's our only hope. You can make a whole bunch of New Year's resolutions around money and possessions and fail at every turn if it's not grounded by, founded in the power of God. So there's a lot. But we've sort of laid a bit of a foundation. We've diagnosed our, our core issue it's a false perspective on who God is and what he's like as a provider. Now, moving into next week, we're going to look at what Jesus says about the heart of the problem. And we'll move on from there. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we begin with confession. We confess that when it comes to money, uh, we'd rather not be told what to do. Uh, we'd rather be left to our own devices. Uh, but I think we've seen this morning that left to our own devices, all we do is fail. We're just by nature selfish. We hoard things for ourselves. We build bigger barns. We believe the lie of the serpent. And so we pray, Lord, not only through these three weeks together, but really through all of life, we pray that you are shaping us to be more like your son, Jesus, who is the very embodiment of this abundance mindset. I pray that as we follow him, as we practice his ways, that we would be made more and more like him. We trust you. We trust that you're doing that in each and every heart, each and every head, through each and every set of hands. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if this has struck a chord with you, I really hope it has. Um, don't, don't just leave it aside. Uh, don't shrug it off. Um, 
Come and pray with us. We'll be over here, just in the space over here. We'd love to pray through some of these things with you. Just know we're all in the same boat when it comes to this kind of thing. We all have the same struggle, and so we'd, all, we'd love to pray with you all uh, as we stand and sing.